Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hunt. Buck Sexton with you here now. Thank you so much for joining. An honor, a privilege, and a pleasure. I think it'll get easier to say that. Uh, Those are tough words to all string together sometimes, but I like it. Um, so we've got a lot, a lot to discuss today. Uh, it is a Friday, so it's going to be kind of a, a, a loose show in terms of bouncing around to different topics. You obviously have uh, at the top of the docket today, I, I think you got to put, uh, McCain helping to, uh, torpedo repeal and replace. And then you've got rocket man, Kim Jong-un making some pretty crazy threats. Uh, I will I will actually share with you the full uh, text later on in the show of what Kim Jong-un had to say in response to um, in response to Trump at the U.N. An unusual step for. Well, I think it's the first time, actually. So calling it unusual, an an unprecedented step. Unprecedented is often abused as a term on the left. Right. Unprecedented. Donald Trump uses executive orders. No, that's not unprecedented, actually. But they figure it's a good headline. We'll get people to click on it. Hashtag resistance. Hashtag resistance. Um, but there is, first, before we get into uh, before we get into all of that, I spoke to you yesterday about this on the show, and I wanted to return to it for a moment, that it seems a, a media pastime now, or... It's becoming one where they're more concerned. They they are more uh, unnerved by Donald Trump, the duly elected commander in chief of this country, than they are by Kim Jong-un and a regime that is steeped in brutality, uh, slavery, the worst kinds of sadism, violence and oppression. Uh, they're they're more worried about Donald Trump. And, and if he says mean things to Kim Jong-un, Donald Trump is the problem. I'm reminded of the way that we are told, for example, don't use radical Islamic terrorism because then some people might become terrorists. Don't speak about jihadism because then some, uh, some people in the, uh, in the Muslim world will become jihadists. I mean, if it's that easy... For an individual to turn to terrorism, we've got a lot of uh, thinking to do about that problem. And if it's that easy for someone to turn to terrorism, they're a problem before anything was said. And in the case of Kim Jong-un, Trump isn't really taking positions that are different from what has been the consensus on North Korea in the past. He's just making it more clear and he seems more credible. When he says things like there will be consequences for one, and we will get into some of the 
some of the details of what those sanctions are later on. We've got our friend Gordon Chang joining to uh, help us analyze that, and I'll give you my sense of what the possibility of a military exchange in the future with North Korea is based on what we're seeing right now. But I can't help but stop for a moment and revisit what I was telling you yesterday, which is that there are people who are obviously more concerned in our own media about the way that Trump talks about North Korea than the threat of a North Korean regime that is getting more powerful, longer range, more accurate missiles all the time. They're not getting those missiles. And I think this is where you have a separation between left and right on this national security issue. They're not getting those missiles just so they can have parades in the streets with them. They're not just building these missiles because they look cool and scary and Kim Jong-un wants to feel like a tough guy. That's that's all part of it, sure. But they're working on these so that they can actually use them if they choose to at some point in the future. We don't know how soon. We don't know when or if that will happen. But they're building them so that they are usable. And that's an important distinction from, I think, the, oh, it's just saber rattling. He's just trying he's just trying to get concessions out of us with his provocations. And, you know, this this language we use, saber rattling, provocation, escalation, miscalculation. These are all useful to a point. But when it just becomes a repetition because we are stuck in a consensus opinion on this, which is, I think, where the foreign policy establishment has been for a long time, then they cease to be useful. It's just it it is a mindless cycle of, well, they did this, so we'll do that. They did this, so we'll do that. All along, they are become they are becoming a more dangerous foe to our allies in the region, Japan, South Korea and others. With, With all that going on, though. Individuals in this country who, yes, have the right to free speech, can say whatever they want about the president, about his North Korea policies. But I would think as an American, you would feel an urge right now to be particularly responsible in how you uh, analyze the current standoff with North Korea. And it wouldn't be the usual petty page six gossip columnist, you know, eighth grade uh, girls gossipy nonsense about the president that y- you wouldn't have people that are deciding that it's more important to take cheap shots at the administration than to deal with the prospect of a nuclear shot from Kim Jong-un. But if you were to think that you might be wrong, here's here's the morning Joe show. OK, okay. okay. Donald, no, we get it. You know what? OK. You, you are know, not a child. You're a seven-year-old man. Stop. You are not a child. I, I, I think that they could. Uh, they're paid millions of dollars. They have this perch, this platform, where it's it's never clear to me that either Miko or Joe is is particularly attached to the substance of the conversation. It's always how they look. In many cases, literally while discussing it, uh, but. Demeaning the president at a moment like this, uh, I, I think that you can see the degree of Trump derangement syndrome when you have such a serious issue as North Korea um, and yet the media focuses on Trump and, and his tweets. Trump's tweets are not going to start a war. They, they can just drop that. Trump's tweets are not going to start a war. Trump's not going to do something crazy because 
uh, of Twitter. That That's just not reality. But Kim Jong-un, we should take the threat from his regime uh, very seriously. In fact, here is a defector from North Korea who wants the American people to know just that. He's very dangerous. Very dangerous. Yes. Why? Very dangerous. He is smarter and stronger than you think. He wants to live longer. Yeah. With all the power and all the authority. He is very dangerous. There is There can be no question about that. And he has consolidated power in a way that surprises, I think, a lot of uh, folks who pay close attention to North Korea from the beginning. I know we're going to be returning to North Korea in the next hour, but I, I just I had to uh, just for a moment get into how it is mind boggling to me that there is a, a seemingly a, a moral equivalency from some of these uh, Hollywood and media types who are acting like uh, Kim and, and Trump, there, there's a, an equivalency between the two of them. You know, they're, they're both crazy. No, no, no. That's that's irresponsible. But uh, we, we'll get into some of that. I also have the I might spend some time on the Howard University speech that uh, former FBI director James Comey tried to give. Um, and I have in, in mind uh, the free speech week at Berkeley that may or may not happen. And. Much, much more. At the end of the show, we'll have a Team Buck Speaks, uh, or at least at some point during the show, we'll have Team Buck Speaks. And because it is Friday, we have Action Movie Quote Friday. Action. If it bleeds, we can kill it. Movie. Come to the coast. We get together. Have a few laughs. Quote free your mind. Fridays. Action Movie Quote Fridays. I got so excited about uh, North Korea and the media's depiction of Trump versus Kim that I I didn't lead off today with what I really intended to, which is that it looks like repeal, what is this, part trois, the third time, the the troisième, the the third effort to repeal and replace Obamacare has been, as I mentioned, has been uh, hit by John McCain and a few other Republicans in the Senate. Uh, It's not over yet, but I think that we're allowed to express some of our frustration. I want to get into this. I want to discuss with you uh, why we should be at least allowed some degree of catharsis in complaining here. It's just unbelievable how the Republicans can't get it together. Republicans in Congress, you know, I've said it before, I'll say it again. What would you say you do here? I would like to know. They show up. They have this bill. We're debating. This is one of the reasons why I didn't spend that much time on health care earlier in the week. Talked to you about it. Got into some of the specifics. I'm like, this is we're talking about a phantom bill. We're talking about a, a, a make believe law here. It's not it's not what it uh, what it seems. And, and it does not seem like it will be. I'm sounding almost philosophical. All right. Uh, 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. Um, we are. Going to go into a break here. Please do call. Action movie quotes, welcome. Anything else you've got in mind for the show? Um, and we are going to have some fun. I, I am planning on a little little close to the Siege of Malta at some point during the show. Probably be in the third hour. So get ready for that. 
and we'll have much more. Stay with me. Going to the states. If you're a Bernie believer, this is your worst nightmare because I take the money and power out of Washington, and I let let states decide this. But you do have to guarantee guaranteed issue and pre-existing. Uh, conditions coverage is a mandate under the bill, but the real objection here by the left is that we take money and power out of Washington. Okay. The left is afraid of power going out of Washington, going to the states. Yeah, that's true. But the right can't seem to get anything done. Here we are, once again, looking at the possibility of a slightly better health care plan. It's not even like this would be great. It's not even fair to say that this repeal and rep- or it's not repeal and replace this alteration, you know, this uh, take taking it, taking up the uh, the pant cuffs a few inches and uh, taking in the I don't know, a little tighter around the waist. I, I don't know. Tailoring terms. That's what it is for Obamacare. This is not a this is not a new set of clothes. It's not a new suit. This is just making alterations to the existing one. And so here we are looking at the Republicans, assuming or hoping, forget assuming, hoping that they're going to be able to pull something off. And yet, no, because here we have Senator McCain once again deciding that he will be the decider. He will be the uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy, if you will, back in the day on the Supreme Court. The one or, or the, uh, uh, you know, he, Sandra Day O'Connor, he's going to be the, the swing vote. For the Democrats, of course. You'll notice that when it came to passing Obamacare, were there any were there swing voters on the Democrat side? Were they like, you know what, I'm going to defect from this whole Obamacare thing. Say what you will about Nancy Pelosi. Say what you will about Chuck Schumer. They seem to be able to get it done. On our side, no such luck. On our side, Congress is buffoonish thus far. Uh, completely incapable of delivering on the promise of a better health care system. For, like I said, repeal and replace isn't even really in the discussion right now. Here's what the New York Times quotes John McCain as saying, we should not be content to pass health care legislation on a party line basis as Democrats did when they rammed Obamacare through Congress in 2009, Mr. McCain said. If we do so, our success could be as short-lived as theirs when the political winds shift, as they regularly do. A bill of this magnitude requires a bipartisan approach. So let me just get this straight, Senator McCain. The Democrats didn't have to take a bipartisan approach at all, and they passed the most sweeping reform of health care in decades. But when it comes to Republicans finally being in power, now it's time for bipartisanship. This is why Republicans lose. Democrats go all the way and Republicans don't know which way. They, they just can't can't understand that wielding power is also a part of this game. It's not just achieving it. It's not just having your fancy office on Capitol Hill and your staff and getting to go on TV, be a little pretend pundit sometimes, do a little fundraising here and there. You are supposed to do things for the American people. And sometimes that means doing things in a partisan fashion. I would love to see a little bit more of a a sense of fight in the Republicans here. 
a sense that they are willing to do what is necessary. Instead, we're going to hear a lot of, you know, a lot of double talk, a lot of out of one side of the mouth and the other side of the mouth. Sure, we're going to get health care. Oh, no, we're not going to get health care. And oh, yeah, we have to be bipartisan. Was Obama once while he was president for eight years? Did he ever once make a truly uh, bipartisan effort towards the other side? Did that ever really happen? Was there any real outreach? Was there an olive branch extended? Hey, we can work together on this. No, Obama would say they're terrible. They don't like poor people. They're racist. I mean, this is I'm paraphrasing here, obviously. Uh, And if they want to be good people, they can do what I want them to do. That was the way he approached Congress, especially when the Democrats were in the majority in the House and the Senate. There was no there was no pretense of bipartisanship. And it's it's like we're stuck in some kind of nightmare here where we give Republicans the House, we give them the Senate. They've got the presidency through reconciliation. They can take action here. There is no the only thing standing in the way of Republicans making it possible not even ensuring, but possible for your health care to get better is other Republicans. That is the truth of the situation right now. I don't know how to feel about that other than to say that it is uh, almost frustrating beyond words. It can't be beyond words because I'm using those to describe it. Yet here we are. Um, We fall into this trap of we're going to be the good guys. Republicans are going to play a different game. We're going to play the bipartisan game. And Pelosi, Schumer, all the Democrats, they must be laughing about this. And Pelosi was actually sending out uh, emails of congratulations. I I saw this earlier. She couldn't be. Yeah, she's sharing the good news with everybody. Um, Couldn't be happier about this. And you get John McCain getting praise from Chuck Schumer. When will John McCain figure out That if Chuck Schumer's praising you on a matter of policy like this, that's not a good thing. I I, here's you have Pelosi saying we will continue to highlight the devastating costs Republicans are trying to inflict on hardworking Americans at every opportunity. This is from her press release. I encourage you to take the discussion back to health care and our key messaging points against the Republican bill. Higher costs, less coverage, key protection gutted, a crushing age tax steals for Medicaid. I mean, just lies and lies and lies. But you'll notice we got John McCain saying, let's be bipartisan. And Nancy Pelosi is sending out gloating emails about how let's keep the pressure on. Republicans are a bunch of anti health care fascists who want old people and poor people to die. But, yeah, let's be bipartisan, John McCain. That's a really smart approach. And it's not just McCain. I know there's there's others in the mix, too. A few other Republicans. I give Rand Paul, some of you are going you're gonna to hit me on this one, but I give Rand Paul more of a pass because I think he actually does think that this is a sham, that they're not repealing and replacing, and that's unacceptable. But all these other ones, they either want the New York Times to write something nice about them, or they want goodies from the federal government for their states, and it's not what they promised. They are inconsistent, they are unprincipled, and they are hurting our health care. On healthcare, and if these guys like inbred John Kennedy would tell the truth for a change, I wouldn't have to. You know, I see these comments from these angry people. They say, "What qualifies you to talk about this stuff? You're a comedian. Go back to being not funny." 
And I feel like it's my duty to remind these people who are so concerned about my qualifications, the guy you voted for for president, his job qualification, he fired meatloaf on television. I guarantee he doesn't know anything about this Graham Cassidy bill. He doesn't know the difference between Medicare and Medicaid. He barely knows the difference between Melania and Ivanka. There you have comedian Jimmy Kimmel, who is at the forefront of Democrat efforts to malign the health care health care bill that's not even going to get passed in the Senate. (laughs) I mean, uh, but this is really just about circling, circling the wagons. It's about putting up a wall around the legacy of the Obama administration for the last eight years. And it is a it is really a a sacrament now. Obamacare is treated with a a kind of uh, sacred, holier than thou, can't touch it uh, approach because it's all about the legacy of the administration before. And it's also uh, showing us, I think, the way that Democrats or, or paving the way for Democrats in the future, uh, becoming increasingly more like Democrat socialists. What's really the difference between Bernie Sanders and a mainstream Democrat? Where the, where's the real difference lie on policy? I'm talking about what they say. I'm not talking about ideologically, because I think that's just shades of gray. Um, the real difference is Bernie Sanders is open about wanting to have socialized medicine. Or single payer. He wants single payer. Truly socialized medicine is, is even a little bit beyond what Bernie Sanders says he wants. But single payer, um, single payer is now getting talked about a lot. And there are polls out that show that the American people, in fact, a majority of them, I saw this in The Hill today, uh, a majority of them like single payer. Now, I can actually understand that. I can imagine asking people questions about single payer and and the response being, yeah, that sounds good, because the way that it's set up by the press is just the government's just going to pay for it, which is another way of saying other people are going to pay for your health care. You're never going to have to worry about costs again. You're never going to have to worry about visiting uh, or waiting times and long lines and rationing. And none of that's going to happen. You're just it's it's going to be all taken care of. That's what I believe a lot of the folks who are saying they like single payer think. Now, that's not true at all. I wonder what the polling would show if instead of just asking the question, what do you think of single payer? Do you like the idea of single payer? They instead said, uh, would you be in favor of single payer if it meant that you lost your current health care plan? Keep in mind that Obamacare only really affected people that were in the individual market, at least affected them very directly. It left most employer-sponsored health insurance or a lot of employer-sponsored health insurance largely intact and alone. So it was really a Medicaid expansion and a takeover of the individual market using massive government subsidies and redistribution of wealth in the exchanges to accomplish some minimal increase in the, quote, insured population, right? So if you have single payer, health insurance companies are probably gone, or at least the health care plans they offer up right now, they're gone. So if you're listening to this and you have a health care plan that you like, which before Obamacare was about 90% of the American people, okay, if you had a health care plan that you basically like, it's gone. 
That whole, if you like your plan, you can keep it, that wasn't true for people in the individual market. That was a big Obama lie. But it also won't be true for anybody because single payer means the government calls the shots, the government pays the bills, you shut up and take what they want to give you when it comes to your health care. That's what single payer means. It means your plan is gone. And oh, by the way, the cost of it would be ruinous, absolutely ruinous to the economy. There's no way around it. But sure, in theory, sounds great. I also want, you know, uh, ice cream that I can eat endless amounts of that costs nothing and that won't make me gain any weight. But that's not reality. And single payer, that's going to be awesome. That's not reality either. All right, we've got more on this, the latest politics of the day, and next hour, more on North Korea. Stay with me. All right, everybody, welcome back. It has been a busy day for the world, a busy day for politics here at home as well. And to shed some light on recent events, we are joined by former Speaker of the House and former presidential candidate Newt Gingrich. He is with us now to talk about Defending America, which is an exclusive online class hosted by Newt Gingrich. But first, Speaker Gingrich, thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's great to be with you, and I appreciate this chance to talk about various things that are happening uh, around the world. I I have to get your, your reaction to what seems to be just another disappointing but perhaps predictable and maybe even inevitable failure by the Republican Congress to do something about Obamacare. What do you think about what's transpired in the last few days? Well, I think there's been a tremendous effort. I think that uh, Lindsey Graham thought that because he was so personally close to Senator McCain that he could carry him, and uh, turned out apparently he couldn't. Uh, I think that the, you know, you have, you have about 49 Republican senators who are fine, uh, and you have about three, maybe four, depending on the on the topic, who aren't. But there were 16 Democrats who voted no for every Republican who voted no. And I just say that to remind people that you know, the problem, you know, if we had a couple more Republican senators, we'd be in great shape. Uh, so we're getting 49 out of, out of 52 or 48 out of 52 pretty consistently, but we're not able to break through. Uh, I, I had some hopes for this. I thought there was some real energy, some real momentum. And frankly, I can tell you from just talking to them this afternoon, the White House has not given up. <clears throat> they're going to continue to work this issue. And uh, they have real hopes they're going to get something done. They'll get something done despite all the frustration. It seemed that uh, Senator McCain, who was among the, the handful that you mentioned who uh, were not willing to go along with this uh, latest iteration of, if not repeal and replace, fix and make better, whatever it is that people think it should yeah, be called. That's right. Yeah, uh, but but if, <laughs> if they're... That's a good way to think of it. Yeah, I mean, I think that we're, we're starting to uh, modify our own expectations here in the, in the, uh, the general public based on what we're seeing. But uh, McCain seemed to suggest that he wants this to go through the normal process, not to use reconciliation, which to me sounds like he thinks there's a way to get Democrats on board with this. But all we've seen from Democrats on Obamacare is intransigence. You were Speaker of the House. You know what it means to actually get the party moving together in one direction. Is the way to get this done trying to bring Democrats on board? Well, I, I think it's impossible because you're asking them to repudiate Barack Obama's biggest single achievement. Uh, but my challenge to, to McCain would have been simple. You you know show up and you you come in the room and give bring us eight Democrats, and we'll and we'll think you're serious, but but don't pretend that you're being morally pure uh, because you want to do something which is impossible. Uh, 
and I, I know of no evidence right now that the Democrats are that any Democrat one is prepared to move. Uh, I can imagine some circumstances where you get two or three. There, I don't know of any circumstance where Schumer's control of the Senate is going to break down enough that you're going to get the the. the you need remember, remember you need eight uh, to to pass it in regular order, and McCain knows that. So I think at one level he's just playing a game. We're speaking to Newt Gingrich. He's a former Speaker of the House and also former Republican presidential candidate. Um, Speaker Gingrich, tell me a bit about Defending America, this online uh, class that you host. What do you, what does it do? What can people learn? Where do they go? Give us the whole rundown here. Sure. Well, folks uh, who are listening can go to DefendingAmericaCourse.com. Uh, it's a very serious effort on our part to lay out the key arguments that we believe are necessary if we're going to defend this country. I decided to do it because I, I looked at Antifa and I looked at left-wing uh, politics on college campuses and left-wing activities in Hollywood and in the news media, and I thought, you know, if we don't get some people standing up and defending America, explaining American values, walking people through the cost of socialism, the cost of big government, the cost of tyranny, uh, we're in real danger of losing our country. So when I describe defending America, I mean it quite literally. We need people who are prepared to intellectually win the argument. And the purpose of, of uh, Defending America, which you can see at DefendingAmericaCourse.com, the whole purpose is to give each one of us the, the ideas, the facts, the language, to enable us to win the arguments with left-wingers so that we can actually stand up for America. On the issue of monuments and the actual, uh, if not rewriting, d- destroying of, of physical history in a sense, uh, I'm assuming that this is something that you probably touch on in the class, but e- even if that's just uh, tangential to what you're you're dealing with in Defending America, which is this exclusive online class for everybody listening, go to DefendingAmericaCourse.com to see it. Uh, what what do you want people to know about this fight over our history? I and mean, what, what are some of well, the key let's, points? Let's be, let's be clear. Um, tearing down statues once you start down this road, and once you decide on your version of purity... This is the sort of thing that the Soviet Union did. It's the sort of thing that the Nazis did. It's the sort of thing uh, that the French Revolution did. Uh, and what happens, of course, is it never stops. In the case of the French Revolution, they ended up with most of the original revolutionaries uh, having their heads cut off by the guillotine. Uh, in the case of the Soviet Revolution, most of them end up in prison as, as uh, uh, Stalin took power and took control. Uh, and I, I, I start there because... I think it is really important to understand that the that facts matter. One of the reasons we we decided to teach defending America uh, as a course is we began to run into these people who assert, you know, that fact, facts are really a Western European gimmick to seize control. Well, no, facts are the basis of any kind of conversation about the real world. And I think it's just uh, tremendously important that we engage in thinking through and talking about the facts. Um, and you can say, well, people, you know, people had weaknesses. That's true, but it's been true of all of human history. And uh, there's an enormous difference between the totalitarian instinct, which you see on college campuses, you see with Antifa, uh, you see sometimes when you hear people talk about how, you know, if, if I disagree with you, we're going to make it illegal to think the way you think. So if you if you 
If you have questions about climate change, that ought to now be illegal. Uh, if you have questions, you know, if you use the wrong words, you can get kicked out of college. I mean, there's a certain kind of thought control underway that's, I think, pretty frightening and pretty dangerous. We're speaking to Newt Gingrich. He's the former Republican presidential candidate, 50th Speaker of the House. And you can check out his exclusive online class on uh, on Defending America. And where do they go, uh, Speaker? Defending America? They go to DefendingAmericaCourse.com. All right. Uh, Newt Gingrich, thank you so much, sir. Great to have you Great on. Great to be with you. Thank you. Look, look, this is it is an important time to think about the defense of America because uh, the arguments that are being leveled against this country in so many different quarters by so many different uh, groups and, and individuals and, and media outlets, uh, they're not new. Uh, there are overwhelmingly retreads of what has been uh, social justice uh, sloganeering in the past, what has been pushed by the, the progressive left for many decades. What's different now is that, one, they feel like Trump is is a moment where they can actually congeal, that they can all uh, come together in a in a leftist, uh, progressive, counter Trumpian revolution, if you will. Although I think you would argue more accurately that Trump is himself, that, that Trump is the counter revolution to progressivism and eight years of, of Obamaism. Uh, and I should note that he, the speaker mentioned a Soviet uh, Soviet era rewriting of history. The way that they would shut you down in the Soviet Union and the way that they would mark you for imprisonment and elimination was to call you a a counter-revolutionary. So it it depends on the revolution we're talking about. But in some context, uh, being a counter-revolutionary is to be is to be a hero, is to be heroic. Um, And I think that pushing back against particularly the cultural revolution that's occurring in this country right now and the history and the fights over history that play such a large part in that there is a a sense of urgency now um and you have a a media that on the one hand feels like it's not quite as important and powerful as it used to be but also on the other side of things is trying to reassert itself and there's a desperation there's a sense of we weren't able to prevent trump from becoming president so now whatever we have to do to restore balance, so to speak, and by balance they mean left-wing dominance of the conversation and uh, left-wing agitators determining social policy, that's what they will do. Uh, that is, that is in fact, the plan. So I'm sure that's an interesting class with, uh, with Newt Gingrich there. And uh, we will be uh, getting into some detail here coming up about uh, North Korea. Big, uh, big day in the international relations foreign policy uh, community, anyone who pays attention to what's happening uh, on the Korean Peninsula would have to say that things are in a state of particular uh, uncertainty right now, uh, that there is a a growing, I think, recognition. I think there's a growing recognition that the status quo will no longer hold. And that means that the, the previously considered steps on both sides, what Kim Jong-un and his North Korean hyper-militant regime intends to do and what, on the other side, uh, we will do either in response or in advance of North Korean action. When, when that changes, the possibility, and it is changing, the possibility for miscalculation uh, gets much higher. I should also note that the, uh, the Iran deal 
you take you have the two sides taking such different lessons from the current state of play around the world right now with uh, on the one hand you have the the left and the former obama uh, acolytes and senior policy folks that are now they're now all in the media right this is government and media are intertwined in a way now that it's almost hard to tell the difference a lot of the time and that was true and under the obama years and it's it's true now as as well um there's a lot of of crossover between folks who have been in administrations are in the media were in the media are in an administration uh, but the story the democrats are running with on all of this is that they think that the trump administration changing course on north korea means that they shouldn't also look long and hard at the Iran deal. And I think that's a complete misreading of what's really going on here. I think that the the administration sees North Korea as, in many ways, ideologically, the approach to it is linked to what we're dealing with in Iran. And in fact, there are concerns about the links between those countries and the the possibility in the future of missile and even nuclear uh, weapons transfer, you know, non-proliferation concerns. So tr- Trump is stepping up to the plate here with his foreign policy team and taking all of this, uh, taking all of this right up front. And uh, I certainly hope they're successful because there are there's really no room for there's no margin for error on this stuff. You really have to get it right. And we shall see if the Trump team is able to. I'll talk to you more about North Korea here coming up in just a few minutes. We'll get into a buck brief. And uh, we'll be joined by my friend uh, Gordon Chang for more in-depth analysis of all things Korea and China and much more. Stay with me. You are now entering the Freedom Hub Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. The war of words between President Trump and Kim Jong-un, the leader of North Korea, intensifies. We have an official communique from North Korea's news agency, and I want to read to you exactly, and this is from Kim Jong-un, the first time ever a North Korean leader has addressed a U.S. leader directly in this way. Uh, I want to read to you the text of this Kim Jong-un response to President Trump. The speech made by the U.S. president in his maiden address on the U.N. arena in the prevailing serious circumstances in which the situation on the Korean peninsula has been rendered tense as never before and is inching closer to a touch-and-go state is arousing worldwide concern. Shaping the general idea of what he would say, I expected he would make stereotyped, prepared remarks a little different from what he used to utter in his office on the spur of the moment as he had to speak on the world's biggest official diplomatic stage. But far from making remarks of any persuasive power that can be viewed to be helpful to diffusing tensions, he made unprecedented, rude nonsense one has never heard from any of his predecessors. A frightened dog barks louder. I'd like to advise Trump to exercise prudence in selecting words and to be considerate of whom he speaks to when making a speech in front of the world. The mentally deranged behavior of the U.S. president openly expressing on the U.N. arena the unethical will to totally destroy a sovereign state 
beyond the boundary of threats of regime change or overturn of social system makes even those with normal thinking faculty think about discretion and composure. His remarks remind me of such words as political layman and political heretic, which were in vogue in reference to Trump during his presidential election campaign. After taking office, Trump has rendered the world restless through threats and blackmail against all countries in the world. He is unfit to hold the prerogative of supreme command of a country, and he is surely a rogue and a gangster, fond of playing with fire rather than a politician. His remarks, which describe the U.S. option through straightforward expression of his will, have convinced me, rather than frightening or stopping me, that the path I chose is correct and that it is the one I have to follow to the last. Now that Trump has denied the existence of and insulted me and my country in front of the eyes of the world and made the most ferocious declaration of a war in history that he would destroy the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, we will consider with seriousness exercising of a corresponding highest level of hardline countermeasure in history. Action is the best option in treating the dotard who, hard of hearing, is uttering only what he wants to say. As a man representing the DPRK and on behalf of the dignity and honor of my state and people on my own, I will make the man holding the prerogative of the supreme command in the U.S. pay dearly for his speech, calling for totally destroying the DPRK. This is not a rhetorical expression loved by Trump. I am now thinking hard about what response he could have expected when he allowed such eccentric words to trip off his tongue. Whatever Trump might have expected, he will face results beyond his expectation. I will surely and definitely tame the mentally deranged U.S. dotard with fire. That is the North Korean premier's response to President Trump's speech at the United Nations. And I just have to say that uh, this is getting pretty intense. Um, they are also threatening now, North Korea is threatening to detonate a hydrogen bomb, a thermonuclear device over the Pacific. Now, this would mean there could be radiation spreading to who knows where. Uh, this would be the first time, if they do this, it would be the first time ever that the North has done this outside of its borders. So it's clearly a major escalation, a major provocation, and it's something that going forward uh, we are going to have to be on the lookout for because if North Korea does in fact decide that it is uh, going to just go all in and test Trump's hand here, I, I don't know how we could just sit back and allow them to detonate a hydrogen bomb uh, over the Pacific in the atmosphere. I don't think that we could stand by and allow that. So we're getting very close to what could be provocations that demand some kind of military response. And the moment you begin to open up that Pandora's box, you're, you're in a, an incredibly precarious place. So uh, this, is an, this is an issue that, uh, like I said, I'm going to be watching all weekend. We are in uncharted territory here with North Korea. I mean, this is a regime that, as I've been telling you all week, is so vicious, is so immoral, so destructive of its own people. I mean, it operates 
concentration camps. It is it is the only place on earth where you still have a modern day communist gulag that is fully functional uh, and that we think that we can assess what the response will be from this guy who's who's my age, basically, who has nuclear weapons, a million man army and is worshipped in this hyper militaristic xenophobic cult it is it is just the most combustible and most dangerous national security challenge in the world right now and the trump administration uh, administration is absolutely playing high stakes poker i think that they recognize that pushing china on this now and finally forcing china to really show us where they stand on this is the only option that kicking the can further down the road that pushing this issue off into the future is just not not something that in good conscience the commander-in-chief could do right now so uh, this is something that will require um, uh, really steely nerves on the part of the senior administration diplomats rex tillerson as secretary of state nikki haley as u.s ambassador to the united nations uh, i am i am absolutely uh feeling like this is in a new phase a new stage this is not business as usual this is not the status quo and when you have a foreign head of state even for a place as bizarre as north korea when you have a head of state who is saying that he's going to detonate a nuke in the atmosphere and is directly challenging uh, our commander-in-chief our armed forces and saying that he will take extreme countermeasures against us Nobody really knows what the future is going to look like here. Uh, this uh, North Korea is a problem that uh, has been decades in the making, and we're going to figure out, I think, here much sooner than, than decades in the future what's going to happen. So um, we're going to bring in Gordon Chang here in just a few minutes. Stay with me for that, and we'll get deeper into North Korea news of the day. All right, welcome back, everybody. Our deep dive into North Korea and the nuclear standoff there continues. We're joined by Gordon Chang. He's the author of The Coming Collapse of China and Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World. Gordon, as always, great to have you. Thanks, Buck. Uh, Okay, this feels different, Gordon. This feels like an escalation beyond what we've seen in the past. What do you make of it at the the 30,000-foot view today? Yeah. There was an escalation this week, and it was not the war of words that we've had between President Trump and Kim Jong-un, each other questioning the mental stability of the other. The escalation is a good one, and that is President Trump imposed sweeping sanctions on those who do business with North Korea. And that includes Chinese banks. Um, so this is uh, obviously has a potential for getting the United States into conflict with China, Uh, Trump on Thursday said that uh, the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, had ordered the Chinese central bank to order Chinese banks not to do business with North Korea. On Friday, the Chinese central, uh, the foreign ministry spokesman denied Trump's uh, characterization of that, indicating that Chinese banks will still be doing business with North Koreans. So this is a zero-sum confrontation that could get quite ugly. But nonetheless, the United States needs to get uh, Chinese and other institutions out of the money laundering business for North Korea. Gordon, how effective do you think these sanctions can be in in terms of changing North Korea policy? I want to get back to the issue of China and some of the problems that this could cause in our relationship with the Chinese. 
But in terms of getting Kim Jong-un to stop firing off missiles, pushing his nuclear technology, trying to learn more about the most devastating weapons known to man, uh, is it possible that these sanctions will be enough to at least make him calm down a bit with these provocations? Well, these sanctions, if they're vigorously implemented, could disarm North Korea. Because what they could do or would do is shut off the flow of funds into the North. That means no money for ballistic missiles, no money for nuclear weapons, and no money for gift politics, which is uh, Kim Jong-un buying the loyalty of generals, admirals, senior party officials with Mercedes-Benz and other luxury items. So this could completely strangle the regime. Because when you look at these uh, sanctions, they essentially mean anybody who does business with North Korea is not doing business with the United States. We're speaking to Gordon Chang. He is the author of The Coming Collapse of China and Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World. Gordon, if in fact the sanctions the the Trump administration just decided to impose this week, the executive order, there's also the U.N. sanctions that were recently agreed upon at the Security Council. Uh, If they do have the effect of dramatically uh, cutting off cash to the North Korean regime, is there a possible is there a possibility in your mind of Kim Jong Un lashing out? Could this force or could this provoke unpredictable behavior and perhaps even a miscalculation on uh, on the North Korean regime's part? Anything right now um, imposing costs on North Korea could trigger such a miscalculation on the part of Kim. Um, but nonetheless, we've got to do this because other approaches that we have tried have failed. It's not to say that this one will work. But this is the one that we haven't tried before, and that's basically the only thing we haven't tried before. So we really, not, we really need to do coercive things. You know, after decades of misguided policies, Buck, there are no reliable, no-cost solutions. Everything looking going forward is going to have a cost. We're going to have to start to bear it if we want to protect ourselves from Kim Jong-un and if we want to protect ourselves from his backers as well. Gordon, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you've been on this show before. And when I've asked you, when we've been talking about North Korea, what could be done, you have specified exactly these kinds of sanctions. Yes, um, and and largely because I think that uh, they do have the capability of basically starving the regime. And when you starve the regime, the one thing you can do is you can also engage it. Remember, Ronald Reagan engaged the Soviet Union at the end. Um, But he engaged them when the Soviets knew that they had no choice but to give up. Well, I think that we should engage the Kim regime when they understand that they have no choice but to give up their missiles and their nukes. And we can show them a better path forward. Um, I'm not saying that this is 100 percent going to be effective, but I think this is the only path that gives us a reliable way out of this. Now, Gordon, what do you think the conversation inside the uh, the Central Committee in, in Beijing and, and the upper reaches of power in China, what do you think uh, the response is and, and what are they saying amongst themselves after these sanctions have been uh, decided upon at the Trump administration this week? Two words. Holy crap. I think that the Chinese are going to be spooked, um, largely because they realize that these sanctions can not only target North Korea, but they could affect China's economy, rock the financial system, bring down the Communist Party. I think that they're worried that Trump may actually have the political will to do something effective. So I think that they are worried. 
you think they're worried. What do you think they may do in response? Or at least in the meantime, is it likely that they will uh, at least give lip service to playing along? Or are they going to make a lot of uh, protests about this? Um, Probably both. Um, They've already started protesting. There's also already been lip service because we heard reports from last week that Chinese banks were dropping North Korean customers. Uh, They did that about a year, 15 months ago. But when we stopped looking, they went back to the old way of doing things, which is laundering money and handling North Korean transactions. So, um, you know, we know that the Chinese are going to resist um, passive resistance, active resistance. But we've got no choice but to make sure that they comply. We need to impose costs on them so they realize that they have no choice but to do what we want so that they would go out and tell the North Koreans they have no choice but to do what we want. Gordon, it's uh, a chain, but it'll work. Uh, J- there have been a couple of missiles fired by North Korea over Japan, I think over the last month or so. Uh, South Korea is obviously always in the crosshairs, literally and, and figuratively. Uh, are they supportive of the Trump administration thus far on these enhanced sanctions? And what do you think that what do you think their thinking is? I think they're scared as well. Um, you know, obviously they see the potential for conflict. They realize that if there is a conflict, Seoul, a metropolitan area of 26 million people, is at risk. Um, but um, I don't think that they believe that they're in a position really to change the calculus right now because the United States appears determined to actually disarm North Korea. And, um, you know, with regard to Japan, they support the United States as they always have. Uh, They've been um, much more resolute than we have been historically. And I think that they now see in Trump a leader who will actually go out and do some of the things that they've been talking about. Nonetheless, of course, the Japanese are, are of course, concerned about conflict. Nobody wants it. Um, But nonetheless, they are supportive. Uh, Gordon, I just want to ask you, there's the the threat out there. And there was the communique from Kim Jong-un, what he called Trump a, a, a senile old man, essentially. Uh, and you also have the possibility of a hydrogen bomb detonated in the atmosphere by North Korea over the Pacific Ocean. Uh, how how likely would you assess that is, and what would the what would the response of the U.S. and the world be if North Korea did detonate a nuke outside of its borders? I think that uh, the possibility of a detonation over the Pacific, in other words, an atmospheric test, is actually quite high, much higher than most of us think largely because it would be Kim Jong-un's way of saying, I have integrated all of my capabilities and now have a usable weapon. Um, I, I think the, whether he actually does so or not is how he views, Kim, uh, how he views uh, President Trump's will. And uh, if he were to go ahead with such a test, I don't know how the United States and others would handle it. Um, but I think that that would start to, of course, put the world on edge and probably would start a chain of events that eventually led to conflict of some sort. That's just a guess, um, because it's not really clear how we would react to an atmospheric test. That would be the biggest provocation, though, of all so far from North Korea in the modern era, right? There's nothing else that would really compare. Um, Well, in the modern era, the North Koreans have killed Americans, which in my mind is much more of a provocation, um, you know, they had the, the Pueblo, they killed one American in 1968. In 1969, they shot down the U.S. Navy EC-121 in international airspace, 31 dead. 
they hacked. Right. Uh, I, 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 I meant in my I meant in my lifetime, Gordon. Apologies. Modern is a is a is a broad term, but yes, I, I mean over the last few years in terms of what they've been doing with missiles. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm a little bit older than you are. Um, the um, yes, a detonation in the atmosphere would be the most provocative act on the part of the North Koreans, unless you consider the sinking of the Chonan in 2010, 46 South Korean dead, and the shelling of Yongbin-do um, also in 2010, four dead. Uh, as more provocative. Um, It just depends how you view these things. All right. Gordon Chang, author of The Coming Collapse of China and Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World. Gordon, always great to have you. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Buck. Team, we'll be right back. Stay with me. So the uh, former FBI director, James Comey, who, depending on the day, is either like liberals favorite public servant or or the worst public servant i mean it really you you just never know when he was useful to them he was great and then when it seemed like he was problems for hillary he was a hack and a republican it just depends on his utility for the left that's what determines the the way the uh, press and the media talk about him but i think he's shown himself beyond any doubt to be a, a partisan and biased player in all this and his uh, efforts to combat the Trump administration after he had left office by leaking the contents of private conversations with the president to the press put that beyond doubt. But in case he wasn't sure that uh, he, he's not going to get uh, warm hugs from everybody, at least on the left, uh, he tried or he was invited to and then tried to give a speech at uh, Howard University, and this is what happened. There's a lot of pain and hurt in this country, in this world, and to the graduates, it's going to be there when you graduate from Howard University. Our country is going through one of those periods where we're trying to figure out, so who are we really, and what do we stand for? As a member of the family that has long guided the life of this nation, you, have you can kind of hear them yelling in the background. I mean, I don't know if it was really coming through there, but um, as as Ty pointed out, it's good that they didn't have microphones, you know, because they were yelling. Uh, but no justice, no peace, I think, was one of the chants. And then also, get out, James Comey, you aren't our homie, that was another chant. Now, look, uh, this is this is one of these instances of campus activism where I just... I wonder if at some point we're allowed to just say that whether it's Berkeley or Middlebury or Howard or any of these schools, the professors just haven't really done their jobs with some of the students. Look, I mean, you you look in that auditorium and a vast majority of the students are sitting there calmly and respectfully and listening to the speaker. But this is happening in enough schools and this is not just Howard. It's happening everywhere. Right. I mean, that's this is a widespread. It's on campuses all across the country that uh, there is the I'm going to talk to you in the next hour about free speech week, which may or may not happen at Berkeley. But there is this mentality that you have to make your politics known all the time. I just find it so tiresome. Uh, This activism as really a social activity, as I think what what pushes much of it, that people think that uh, protesting is fun. In fact, if you take a step back and you read Saul Alinsky, and I will never forget that Hillary was a huge admirer of Saul Linsky's when she came out of Wellesley and that that just was considered somehow not that big a deal. She practically wrote the guy a love letter, um, but she was a big 
Alinskyite. And I think that just was an early window into the fact that Hillary Clinton wanted power and that was the single most important thing that she could achieve. And however she went about that, that didn't really matter. It was just about doing it. Um, so I think uh, with, with uh, Alinsky, you have one of his important tenets is that activism should be fun, that people should enjoy it. And he's right. If you want to get people to protest, you have to make it fun. If you want to get people to be activists, it has to seem cool. And that's why you have various celebrities. I remember down at Occupy Wall Street, you had celebrities showing up. I think Michael Moore showed up. And I, I can't even remember. A lot of celebrities showed up down there because it was cool. Protesting is cool on the left. On the right, other than the Tea Party, which was for a specific period of time and led to an electoral landslide and had clear messages and was not it was not overwhelmingly peaceful and law abiding. It was entirely peaceful and law abiding. I mean, there were if there had been any incidents of the Tea Party back in uh, you know, 2010, 2011 acting up, we would have known uh, we would have known about it and then some. But protest is just not part of the culture on the on the right. Uh, protest was not um, not something that people that are conservative look to as a means of speaking out. And campuses are so overwhelmingly left wing, are so overwhelmingly uh, progressive that you're just now you, you can assume that whenever there's a protest movement going on, it's almost certainly for some Democrat leftist cause. Uh, But bringing it all the way back to James Comey here, Comey is never going to be fully accepted, is never going to be fully accepted uh, on the left. He will always be viewed as someone who cost Hillary the election by enough Democrats that he, he will not be in good standing. So that means in some ways he's, a somewhat unpredictable player. You know, you can't be entirely sure about what James Comey is going to do going forward and what he's going to say, uh, other than he clearly has a, an axe to grind with the Trump administration. Uh, but I, I thought it was interesting that he, he can't even give a speech at Howard University without getting shouted down. This Shouting down speakers, this happens. And look at Amherst, they had people uh, wear, dressing with black armbands and doing all of this. So that uh, Justice Scalia would feel like he was being, I don't know, people were shouting down his terrible thoughts. This was a sitting Supreme Court justice when I was in school. There was a protest moving against that. The political science department. I'm a student and I'm a poli sci major and my, my department boycott the speech of a sitting Supreme Court justice. I mean, we were lucky. Our little school of like 1,600 people had anybody wanted to come speak of that stature. Uh, so th- this is not new, and I understand that. But it does feel like it's it's worse and it's more pervasive. It's everywhere. Um, and we will just have to uh, continue to see how this, how this plays out for Comey. And also, because I don't think you've heard, you have not heard a lot. James Comey likes to be... Uh, likes to be in the spotlight, likes to be the center of attention far too much. Um, he's not going to just edge uh, edge out of things. He's not going to just walk away quietly. Um, that's what I have on that. I'll come back in a second. 800, uh, sorry, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825.
Um, we will, I think, get into some history coming up here in just a little bit. But I have not. I had a little bit of a glitch. I apologize. In the last hour, I I had the <laughs> I had the wrong screen up here in the Freedom Hut, so I wasn't seeing your calls come in. I thought that I didn't. There were a lot of calls, but I didn't see them, so I didn't know that there were. We had the wrong. I had the. It was on me. I had the wrong program open. So if you called and you couldn't get through or you called and you were on hold or whatever, it's not because I was trying to just rant and rave for, for uh, the entire hour. I didn't see any calls, otherwise I would have taken them. So if you have an action movie quote that you want to throw my way, if you think you can beat me in the action movie quote game, well, let's see what you got. And with that, my friends, I'll be back in just a few. Welcome back, team. I, I also know I, I had the wrong call screen up before, and now I, I heard that uh, some of you, we, we may have dropped off for a second with a technical difficulty that's just in the relay. Technology is a wonderful thing until it's not, but we're back. We're back. It's good. No worries about that. Um, uh, a few notes today on or a few thoughts today on on Hurricane uh, Maria. Uh, it, I feel terrible for Puerto Rico. I, I was just in Puerto Rico. What? I don't know. Four or five months ago, six months ago now. Uh, it's a wonderful place. I have many, many friends who uh, grew up there, from there, and uh, it's in darkness still. They don't know when the power is going to come back on. Hurricane Maria really rocked the uh, island, and there's structural damage at uh, structural damage at a dam that is causing an evacuation. Here's the New York Times reporting on it: A dam in northwestern Puerto Rico suffered structural damage on Friday. Uh, Close to 70,000 is the estimate of people that could be affected in the case of a collapse. We don't know the details. It is time to get people out, according to the governor. And there's also a flash flash flood warning. Uh, It is it is a very rough time on the island. I was speaking to a friend of mine today, actually, who who is is Puerto Rican. uh, And as he would always say, he's American, but his uh, home island is uh, Puerto Rico. Uh, and and we, we had a very interesting discussion. I mean, for one, of course, I just wanted I, I saw him and I said, you know, how's your family? And he told me, look, I I haven't been able to reach them. I could tell it's I, I wanted to, I, I always like being the person who can look someone in the eye and say, you know, I understand you're stressed, but it's going to be OK. And I wanted to say that to him, but I also didn't want to be disingenuous because I, I you know I don't know what's going on down there. I mean, I'm sure his family's fine, but when you can't reach them, I think just telling people, oh, no, it's fine. Uh, given what's going on on the on the island, he says there are bridges that have been uh, swept away by uh, rivers, and there's food short. You know, people. When I say food shortages, it's not that you know they've had a famine or something, obviously, but they can't get food to parts of the island that need it. People weren't necessarily as prepared for this as they should have been, even though there was another hurricane that had just gone through there. And so I, I just was telling him, I you know was was thinking about him and, and praying for him and his family. And uh, then we just got into a discussion about some of the the politics of of Puerto Rico and, and U.S. territory and the way it's described. And, and he he took a look. He had a very interesting perspective, I think, on this. And and I I can't I can't disagree with it, which is that there would be a different tone in the media if this were uh, Maryland. There would be a different tone in the media if this were what we think of as uh, homeland U.S. Even though even though Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens, they are Americans. There's a, a, a slight disconnect. This came up also recently with Guam. I think a lot of people are like, what does that mean? It's a U.S. territory. Well, you know, 
Why is Kim Jong-un threatening Guam? Well, yeah, they don't have the same representation rights in, in Congress, but it's U.S. territory. Uh, so it is under it is a U.S. domain that is U.S. land. So and, and people are like, oh, Guam. Yeah, it's really far away. But this is a, uh, a historical uh, a part of our legacy, a part of our historical legacy that I feel like is not well known enough. And in the case of Puerto Rico, uh, for you know well over 100 years now, it was really the, the turn of the 20th century and the Spanish-American War, we, we've had. Puerto Rico has been U.S. territory, and, and they've been American citizens. This is reflected, I think, somewhat in, in the way that the, the media covers it. Uh, it's sort of like a bunch of Caribbean islands in Puerto Rico have been hit. It's like, well, those are Americans. So we should uh, we should have that in mind as we see the way that this is being discussed and described, and, and it's in really, really bad shape. Uh, another a side note that came up in the discussion that I thought was uh, worthwhile or just interesting was he was telling me that the uh, way that Puerto Rico is viewed by other countries in Latin America is very much affected by the fact that it is a U.S. territory. So Puerto Ricans have the wonderful gift of citizenship. And and I mean, it's a gift in that you have it, I have it, or I'm not sure everyone listening is a citizen, but you know what I mean. Um, Anyone who is a U.S. citizen is very fortunate. Uh, So they have that, but there's also criticism that comes from um, Latin American countries, uh, particularly in the Caribbean, the Caribbean basin, some South American and Central American countries, because they're it's like they're uh, somehow, you know, pampered by being U.S. citizens. And all these other countries, when they want to go to America, they have to go through these processes, whereas Puerto Ricans have a U.S. passport. They can just go. And I think there are more Puerto Ricans in America than there are on the island of Puerto Rico, right? Yeah, Ty's giving me the nod. Yeah, he's saying yes. And I believe there are about a million in New York City, which is the single largest concentration of Puerto Ricans in America. So, I mean, the Puerto Rican Day parade here is, in terms of uh, size, scope, and festivity, only perhaps matched or rivaled by St. Patrick's Day. But I I think the Puerto Rican Day parade is probably a good bit bigger, having been through uh, a lot of them. And I, I think it's fascinating to see the different uh or or to think about the different competitive narratives between countries that you don't often think of in that way for example uh if you did not know this uh there's a competitive is probably a gentle way of putting it but between uh dominicans and haitians there is a particular tension national tension they share the same island but are very different culturally and and there is some ill feeling between, and of course, every individual is an individual. I don't mean every person, but it, as a as a national narrative, you know, there's some there's some there's some beef you could say between between those two uh, countries, and with Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic, because there are a lot of Dominicans in America as well. There is also some feeling of. It's it's unfair that Puerto Rico has this special status and people from the Dominican Republic, which is a lot of, of course, uh, U.S. tourism there and a lot of back, you know, a lot of Dominicans come to America and, um, that, you know, there's there's a tension that exists there. And this I talk about this sometimes in the context of the Middle East and what countries don't like other countries, in the Middle East. You know, pretty much everybody doesn't like the Gulf states because they're rich and bratty. That's the so if you're from any, the UAE and if you're from these places, uh, 
Kuwait, you know, especially the smaller, wealthier countries, the rest of the Arab world, you know, Egyptians are like, ugh. these are huge generalizations. I'm just putting it out there. But uh, having this discussion today about, you know, the, the Latin American perceptions uh, of U.S. of what it, what it is to be a U.S. territory. But anyway, this is a long and roundabout way of or long and roundabout discussion. And I was just uh, musing about Puerto Rico. And I, I think uh, how few people really understand even think of what the U.S. territories are, you know, the U.S. Virgin Islands. We don't think of these as America, and they are. And I must say we, I'm sure a lot of you are like, fuck, I do. But the way the media talks about it, there's a foreign, you know, Hawaii is America, right? Like everyone, Hawaii is America. We, you know, we got, of course, you got Pearl Harbor there, and you've got a uh, huge military presence. Hawaii, Hawaii is America. But Guam is like, is Guam really America? And the answer is yes, actually, Guam Guam is America, and it is a very important strategic uh, node. It is a, an important place for America, um, and you know, Puerto Rico, an island of over 3 million people, is is also very much America, and those are our uh, American brothers and sisters on that island, and we need to do everything we can and, and bring them all the help and, and support um, that we can, and, and I, I would like to think that that is underway right now. Another part of this that has not gotten much attention or discussion, Trump administration has done a really solid job on these numerous one after another disaster relief efforts. Uh, the the FEMA deployments, the and all the federal pieces that have to be put into play here. And you know how you know that it's been good? If it wasn't good, it's all you'd hear about. I mean, short of the Iraq war, the single biggest point of opposition to President Bush, or I shouldn't say opposition, single biggest point of criticism for President Bush was the Katrina response. And I think that really haunted him and haunted his administration um, in, yeah, in in profound ways. Now, the Iraq war, even even more so, and that was used by the press against him to great effect. And that's how the Democrats swept into power. And you had the huge shift in the midterms. But Trump has done a good job. You know, they tried here and there that, you know, Melania was like wearing sneakers and instead of wearing heels or whatever it was. But by and large, it has been uh, successful from the Trump administration and some very important moments here. And he won't get credit from the media from it, but you know that he deserves it because if he deserved criticism, it is all you would hear from them. It is absolutely the only thing that would be run on the news right now. Um, I think we'll talk some Siege of Malta finale coming up. Stay with me. The Siege of Malta Part 5. When I last last left the story, uh, we had seen on the island of Malta a massive struggle between the Knights of St. John, uh, the Knights Hospitaller, uh, versus the Ottoman Turks, who had landed an invasion force of about forty or 50,000 in an effort to take this critical fortress in the middle of the Mediterranean, which was going to be a waypoint, a beachhead, if you will, for a massive assault into the heart of Europe itself. And when I left the story with you, you had the forces of the Ottoman Turks and uh, the Sultan's right hand, Mustafa Pasha and Piala Pasha, the admiral, had managed to take St. Elmo, a fort that had held out well beyond anyone's expectations 
back in the summer of 1565. I told you the story last week because that was the week of the end of the siege, and we're now going to get to the end of the siege itself. So they took they took St. Elmo after uh, barrages that lasted for weeks and seemed to be endless. And then there was that infamous historical episode where the Ottoman Turks beheaded the captives that they had or those that they had captured, including some of the dead that they found in St. Elmo and floated the bodies across to the remaining forts in the Grand Harbor Harbor of uh, Malta. And they had cut off the heads, they put them on crosses, they floated them over, and then Valette, in an act of retribution, executed his Turkish soldiers and fire or executed Turkish captives and fired their heads across the Grand Harbor. So this entered the final stage because by taking Fort St. Elmo, now the Grand Harbor, the the prize of Malta uh, was open for invasion. And you had two major fortresses uh, on outcroppings on peninsulas in the harbor, Singlea and Burgu, and on the Fort St. Angelo on Burgu, and on Singlea you had the Fort of St. Michael's. So all of the Ottoman forces were expected to be concentrated in the harbor against those two fortresses, but the Turks uh, were crafty, and they managed to pull their ships across the land, across Mount Skibaris and the peninsula that separated the Maramusketo from the Grand Harbor so that you had Turkish ships and Turkish military forces all in the harbor itself. They no longer had to go through the mouth of the harbor and be open to fire. They uh, opened to fire from the defenders, the Knights of St. John. They could now just at will let themselves into the harbor and come at the knights uh, from both sides. The fighting was vicious, um, and it didn't look like the knights would be able to hold out for long. All the while, they were hoping that from the north, Don Garcia, the viceroy of Sicily, would send the much-needed reinforcements. He pretended to send them, or he promised to send them, in June of 1565, and by the time St. Elmo had fallen and the fort's of St. Angelo and St. Michael's were the only thing preventing Ottoman conquest of the island. It was mid and late August going into the end of the fighting season. Uh, the, The Turks sent wave after wave of men up against the thick walls and the well defended bastions of St. Elmo and St. of uh, St. Michael's and uh, St. Angelo and were repulsed time and time again. Their losses were appalling. Going into late August, it seemed as though the Turks would actually be able to overrun one of the positions. Um, And this is when a fateful decision was made by de Valette, Jean Parisot de Valette, the Grand Master of the Knights of St. John on Malta in 1565. Instead of saying that they should retreat to their main Citadel to the inner sanctum, the inner fortress uh, of the Grand Harbor, and to pull up, pull away from the walls at Bergu and Singlea, which are the two peninsulas and towns. And on each peninsula in each town, there was one main fortress. Instead of pulling back to Fort St. Angelo and, and hoping to hold that one position, he said, no, that just means that we will lose. It's inevitable. 
if we're going to hold out, we have to hold all of it. If they are able to concentrate their forces against one single defensive strong point, they will pound us into rubble. So this was against the council, and it was an incredibly uh, bold military decision at the time because it was against the council of all of his most trusted knights. And they insisted on maintaining the defense of both forts, both towns, all of the walls, despite the uh, artillery barrages and the Ottoman efforts to scale and scale the walls and uh, seize these defensive uh, strong points. At, there was one period, there was one day when it looked as though Burgu was going to be entirely overrun. And this is when the capital of Malta, Medina, came into play. This is when it became uh, a decisive mistake for the Ottomans. They left Medina alone. Medina was the capital city of Malta, and there was a small cavalry contingent that was allowed to roam free. The Turks figured that it wouldn't be, it was away from the main battle, it wouldn't be enough of an issue, and that they could just defend their rear guard as they needed to. But as it turned out, at a critical moment when the Knights of St. John were about to be overrun, and Malta would have been taken by the Turks, and then after that Sicily, and after that Italy and the European mainland, uh, at least would have been the next targets for the Sultan's conquest. But the cavalry charge from Medina into the rear of the Turkish camp uh, managed to turn the tide of battle. The Turks would have probably stayed and finished off Birgu, but... They thought that that small cavalry contingent that they had left uh, from Medina was, in fact, the much anticipated reinforcements from Sicily when it, when it was really just the equivalent of a few patrols on horseback. But at the moment when it, it was impossible for the Knights of St. John to continue to hold the line and to defend the walls uh, of the fortresses of Malta on the Grand Harbor against the Turkish invasion, it was a small contingent of Maltese cavalry that brought the Turks out of their forward fighting positions, brought them back into their camp to deal with what they thought was an invasion force in the rear of, um, of where they had set up their main, uh, main positions. So they were able, so the Knights of St. John were able to hold. And then finally, starting in the first week of September, after all of the delay, you had the arrival, uh, the setting sail, and then the uh, the transfer of reinforcements from Don Garcia in Sicily. He had brought together a force that was not quite large enough necessarily to completely uh, frighten away the Turkish military, what was left of it, military, uh, its army and, uh, and the armada, its naval forces arrayed with it. Uh, but they had lost much of their fighting spirit. The Janissaries, the new soldiers, the crack troops of the Ottoman Empire had sustained massive losses. Dysentery was widespread in the camp, and they were either going to have to stay through the winter on the island of Malta, which had already been uh, already been harvested and there was very little left. The wells had been poisoned. They could either stay or go. And on September 11th, 1565, the uh, great Turkish invasion of Malta came to a halt and they withdrew back to uh, the, the seat of Ottoman power in uh, Istanbul. 
And that is how the siege of the great siege of Malta uh, ended. I I would love to see this turned into a movie. I would love to see this made into a series uh, because it's hard to convey uh, without going into great detail and and without uh, spending much more time on it than I'm going to today or or on the show. Um, The ferocity of the person-to-person combat here it's uh, hard to make it seem real, I think, without the visualizations of it. But this battle on this little island in the middle of the Mediterranean that uh, came to its conclusion in September of 1565 uh, had an enormous impact on the Islamic conquest, the Ottoman expansion. And were it not for their ability to turn back the Ottoman Turks at Malta in 1565, you would not then have had in 1571 the decisive naval engagement of Lepanto, which I'm also hoping to get a chance to talk to you about on this show, uh, where the Ottoman fleet was annihilated. And it had as its goal the destruction of the unified Christian naval forces so that in the following fighting season they would be unopposed and could land wherever they wanted and start an invasion by sea, a massive amphibious landing, if you will, of Ottoman forces to take the fight into the heart of Europe itself. So it's it's a battle. One day I, I will get to Malta. One day I will be able to share with you photos, hopefully, and, and personal stories of it on, on Facebook and on this show. Um, but in the meantime, it is one of the most interesting, for me at least, one of the most interesting uh, moments in the cross versus crescent struggle. And I highly recommend The Great Siege by Ernley Bradford. Very readable, very uh, excellent account of this battle. And that is the end of the Siege of Malta. And now we will talk about some other things. I'll be right back. So that's how it went the last time the uh, right-wing provocateur, that seems to be the main way I see him described. But that was the scene when, uh, that was the, the sounds, I should say, when Milo Yiannopoulos last was at Berkeley. Uh, there were alarms and broken windows and mobs and rioting and screaming and uh, people completely lost their minds. Uh, I should note that there is another... Uh, Milo appearance that is planned uh, coming up at Berkeley here and no one really knows what's going to happen I'm seeing reports that it's cancelled I'm seeing reports that it's on Uh, I'm seeing reports that the speakers that are listed as speaking aren't even showing up I don't know if this is a publicity stunt I don't know what's going on here but uh, I do know that uh, this is getting a a fair bit of attention. Here's what the uh, LA Times is reporting on this right now. A series of talks by controversial speakers being planned at UC Berkeley by right-wing provocateur, there you go, Milo Yiannopoulos, appears to be falling apart as the Sunday kickoff date approaches. For starters, UC Berkeley officials say only four speakers have confirmed their visit with the university. At least four other speakers that Yiannopoulos had touted in press releases have said they were blindsided by their inclusion on the schedule and never intended to come. Uh, I saw in the speakers list here initially, uh, you had uh, Ann Coulter listed to speak. You had uh, 
Lucian Wintrich, who is a writer for Gateway Pundit. We've actually had him on this show in the past. Uh, I'm seeing that Mike Cernovich is supposed to be there. And uh, there are some others who have said that not only they're not going to be there, Charles Murray said he's not going to be there. And he also said that uh, some he had some pretty choice words. I saw quoted about Milo calling him a de- a despicable blank. Uh, so there's that. Uh, but Steve Bannon may be showing up. I mean, it, this is just uh, this is in flux right now. We'll find out more. Here's. Uh, what the L.A. Times as of this morning was reporting. A counter demonstration is scheduled in Berkeley on Saturday, the day before the free speech week events are set to kick off. The event dubbed No Hate in the Bay March Against White Supremacy is sponsored by an array of groups, including labor unions and human rights organizations. Ben Shapiro, a far less controversial figure than many on next week's schedule, whose speaking engagement in Berkeley went off without a hitch, said that, Regardless of whether the event happens, Yiannopoulos got what he wants. Headline. Yeah, I'm getting the sense, end quote there. I'm getting the sense that this is just Milo wanting people talking about Milo. And here I am doing that. Uh, I I had had him on radio a few times some years ago. And and then he became, uh, well, he he no longer had interest in in doing certain radio shows, I suppose. Uh, I don't know what that was all about. But he has obviously had some some difficulty in the press in uh, in recent times. But the fact that this can create such a stir that even after the Ben Shapiro speech at Berkeley, which was a pretty straightforward conservative, Ben did a very good job, but it was a pretty straightforward conservative speech. It wasn't anything overly provocative, but that you can do this, that you can just put out there the hint of a conservative uh, a conservative speaker in the area of Berkeley or in Berkeley campus, on Berkeley campus itself, and that gets this reaction is just astonishing I mean, th- that they keep doing this. It is so uh, clearly undermining the left's uh, and any uh, rational and reasonable Democrats are seeing that this undermines the left's premise that it is intellectually superior to the right, that it is all about freedom, th- that they can be called liberals. I mean, this goes to one of my key points that I've been making on radio from the earliest days of being on radio, and that is that you absolutely cannot call yourself a liberal if you are opposing free speech based on content that you don't like. That's why liberal for the left in this country is a misnomer, and I think it's intentional. I think that they do it because it uh, is making up for their lack of actual liberalism. They've always been about statism and having government authority uh, dictate what others can and cannot do in their lives, take more of your private property. And there are no individual rights. There are only, uh, there's only the balancing of collective needs and collective social justice and that that's the primary mission of the state. So I I just think it's fascinating that this keeps playing out. I I wish that I was controversial enough that if I showed up at Berkeley, people would freak out or maybe uh, I mean, I I would love to get this uh, this chance to be the the hated conservative on a college campus because uh, there's nothing that I say that is not completely and and utterly defensible. Uh, And in fact, I think that most of the arguments that I make, I would love to see the opposition try to defeat it. But but when I think about this, I realize that they don't want to debate. They want to shout down. Uh, 
they don't want to have conservatives come to campus and then uh, annihilate their premises. They want to just use the threat of force and mayhem and destruction of property to prevent people from saying stuff they don't like. Snowflakeism is a real disease in this country. You have an entire generation or two. Keep in mind that a lot of uh, Antifa, Antifa, they're not young. Uh, I mean, in the sense that they're not college kids who don't know any better. Antifa and, and you know whatever we want to call it, Antifa is actually full of people who are supposed to be productive citizens who have jobs and perhaps even families that, that are adults. The ones who have been arrested in the Bay Area, a lot of them in their 30s, they're my age. I mean, I'm worried about throwing my back out when I pick up bottled water for Miss Molly on the way home. These people are dressing all in black with masks and, and tactical gear, squaring off against police and getting tear gassed so that they can stop Milo from coming to speak or trying to stop Ben Shapiro. This is, I, I, I keep coming back to the word delusional. These people are delusional. They are detached from reality. They think that they're fighting a struggle that's not even there, and the media is sympathetic towards them. That there's not more open mockery of Antifa, of the anti-campus speech movement and Antifa and all of this tells us so much about the state of American uh, pop culture right now. I mean, there should be SNL sketches with a bunch of guys like, oh, do you see the, what's going on there with the speech on campus? I'm going to wear all black because I'm part of Antifa. I'm like a, I'm like a, a super anti-speech ninja. I'm going to stop them from speaking. I mean, you could make fun of this stuff all day. But instead... You have the left largely sympathetic to it. I mean, it's just pathetic. It really is. We'll see if this right wing week, uh, I'm sorry, free speech week, rather, actually ends up happening. Um, and we'll be back with uh, much more. Stay with me. Welcome back, team. So uh, there are some Freedom Hut uh, traditions, rituals and and characters that you may not be entirely familiar with. And as I'm uh, making a, a particular point to get to all of the, and, and we will have Team Buck Speaks coming up here in a moment, but to make sure that I am as in touch with the wonderful folks all across the country and around the world uh, known as Team Buck, uh, I can sense, or rather I'm just reading it over and over again, uh, that people actually miss some of our earlier characters and special correspondents, including some who... Uh, are figments of my imagination, or rather figments of your imagination, our imagination, I don't know, or they're totally real, whatever you want to believe. So back in the days of the blaze, uh, I started with a, a little furry bear, um, and we named him Kami Bear, and he, if you've never seen uh, what he looks like, you can go to bucksexton.com slash store there is a photograph of him on the t-shirts of Kami Bear that you can see but Kami Bear is a uh, both an international jet, jet setter as well as a diehard communist from the Soviet era he carries around with him a bottle of vodka and a Kalashnikov at all times and he's a very astute observer I mean he's small and furry and belligerent but he's a very astute observer of everything that is happening in the world of international politics and also pop culture. So like a true socialist or communist, 
He loves spending other people's money and hanging out in the corridors of power, but he also likes to lecture us all about capitalism and how we are imperialist dogs and basically the worst. So our special socialism correspondent here on the show is indeed Comrade Commie Bear and making his debut on Buck Sexton with America Now, here is the one and only. Greetings, imperialist hyenas. Has been long time. Is your favorite Marxist mammal, the cuddly communist, the one, the only, the commie bear. Okay, okay, so it's time for bust out the hammer and sickle of truth, for real. Some of you capitalist swine are asking question. Did Seabear help throw the election to get my main home slice, Donald Trump, elected to presidency of Amerikanski scum? Was there collusion? Like when Kami Bear collude with T-Swift and Beyonce on Super Yacht in Aegean? Did Kanye take Manafort for ride in G5 plane? And does Comrade Putin have top secret photo of Hillary doing yoga? Ha! These are answers that only Kami Bear can give you in due time. But first, let's understand that, as always, you chubby, materialistic, capitalist donkeys, the proof is in the vodka. Dosvidaniya, filthy Yankee dogs. Well, Team Buck, we have covered a lot of territory on the uh, program today. You'll notice uh, this show is a, a bit different from some of the more traditional radio uh, talk radio programs out there. And based on a, a lot of the commentary that I'm seeing from all of you, you're cool with that. In fact, I'm, I'm getting encouragement to do even more experimental segments and bring uh, new things into the show. So... Uh, with that in mind, I will now return to what is becoming a favorite segment, Team Buck Speaks. Uh, and before I start sharing words of wisdom from all across the country, and in fact, in some cases around the world, wanted to remind you listening, whether you're listening live or on the iHeart app on Playback or on iTunes, uh, the podcast, Buck Saxon with America Now, you can send me messages and I will read them at facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. And if it is particularly uh, insightful, encouraging, witty, funny, and or you uh, critique the show in a humorous fashion, uh, you may in fact get your message on air. But nice stuff is my favorite, so I'm just going to put that out there. And I am the one who does the picking when it comes to the Facebook messages. So here's what we've got for Team Buck Speaks. Um, David writes, maybe Yale can call itself the university formerly known as or they can use an emoji. My suggestion would be, and then he put in a bunch of different emojis, which I can't even really understand what he's going for there, but I appreciate that. But yes, David, uh, to your point about Yale, this is where you see how serious the left really is in this country about its politically correct uh, nonsense. Uh, they will do things that are at other people's expense, and they will make a big show of... Uh, trying to seem like they care a great deal about uh, social justice and intersectional politics and all that stuff. But when it's going to be an issue or it's going to be something that uh, in general is painful for them, it costs them money or it costs them prestige, then these universities, they get uh, pretty wimpy pretty quickly. I can assure you that Yale University, which currently costs over $50,000 a year for an undergrad, and is among the most elite institutions of higher learning on the planet, at least by reputation, 
is not going to change its name. People pay all that money and struggle so hard to get into that place, not because the education, and this is very important for everyone listening to know, to hear, and to believe, because I assure you, I know that it is true. It's not that you're going to get a better education in an undergraduate program at Yale than at whatever state school you are in or whatever college you choose to go to. It's that you have Yale on your resume. You can walk around with a Yale sweatshirt on and say, I'm a Yale man. Well, hello, I'm from Yale. And that has some currency in social settings as well as professional settings. That's what it's all. That's that's 75 to 80 percent of the benefit of going to these places. So they will not change the name. All right. Caroline writes, Team Buck Speaks. Very good segment. Thank you, Caroline. Also, please keep the history deep dives coming about the overrated artists. I completely agree with Billy Joel and Springsteen. Now, with regard to Bob Dylan, you see the value in his songwriting and poetry when other artists perform his work. I am a diehard Jimi Hendrix fan, and Hendrix was a diehard Bob Dylan fan. He always had a book of Dylan's lyrics wherever he went. In fact, the famous All Along the Watchtower was written by Bob Dylan and covered by Hendrix. That being said, I never sit and listen to Bob Dylan performing his own songs, and neither should anyone else, really. Shields high, not harmonicas. Uh, Very interesting musical analysis from Caroline there. Caroline, thank you so much for sharing that. I I do think that uh, Jimi Hendrix is pretty fantastic, and and I would agree with you at least that there there is room for discussion about Bob Dylan's uh, merit as a lyricist above his ability as an actual musical performer. Jason, a lot lot of people writing in about the music comments from earlier this week. Jason writes, with regard to Bruce Springsteen, Born in the USA is a song about how terrible the USA is. Ironic that people think it's patriotic. Check out the lyrics to vindicate your opinion. Also, yeah, he totally stinks. That's what Jason uh, Jason says here. And uh, I did pull the lyrics, and I already knew this, but just in case you didn't know, that whole, born in the USA, I was, you know, that whole, I mean, I know that's not the best Springsteen impersonation, and I'm just a guy on a radio mic right now, uh, but here is a selection of lyrics from that song. Got in a little hometown jam, so they put a rifle in my hand, sent me off to a foreign land to go and kill the yellow man, end quote. Yes, I, uh, I have to uh, agree with Jason's assessment here that Born in the USA is not a patriotic song. It is, in fact, a classic liberal tear-down America uh, song or, you know, a moment of a leftist uh, artistic expression, which we've all become so used to. All right, we've got uh, Irwin writing, Hey, Buck, since I listen to your podcast every morning on my walk, I'm always a little behind. This morning, I heard your friend Ned Ryan suggest that we should perhaps give in to DACA if we are able to get the wall, health care reform, and tax relief. I, for one, couldn't disagree more. I am sick to death of allowing Democrats to wear us down on major issues. I find it particularly distasteful when supposedly we have the House, Senate, and presidency. What a load of crap. I say we fight to the bitter end, but I know that we will that will never happen because of the absolute slime that we have as our so-called, quote, representatives. Best wishes to you and yours. Love your show from Irwin. Uh, Irwin, man, thank you so much for the uh, for the note. Appreciate it. And in terms of Republicans uh, being slimy and not being willing to fight, uh, 
you picked quite a uh, quite a week at least to write in to uh, Team Buck Speaks here because with the apparent failure of yet another repeal and replace attempt, I just keep asking the questions to the GOP. What would you say you do here? I think it's a very valid, very fair question to ask. And those of you who haven't seen Office Space, consider that your movie watching homework for the weekend. Great, great comedy. And I think it's probably available on Netflix at this point. All right, Brett writes in with the following. Buck, you're doing a great job. I love the history deep dives, your in-depth analysis on topics of the day, which I almost 100% agree with, and your historical perspectives on topics like Afghanistan, North Korea, and the roots of radical extremists. I'm sure you've gotten a lot of requests on historical deep dives by now, but what would you think about doing a Christmas special on the World War I truce between the Allies and the Germans on Christmas Day? I think it'd be very interesting to do a special like that. I did, some years ago at The Blaze, do a TV special, and I think I also did something on radio, but I definitely did a TV special guest hosting for Glenn Beck on The Blaze TV uh, on the Battle of the Bulge. And in fact, I had some veterans from the Battle of the Bulge on the show, and they told me what that was like. Uh, It was really powerful to get a chance to speak to those veterans and hear what that was like. And it it was a tremendous, uh, a, a tremendously precarious moment in uh, the military campaign and our campaign, the Allies' efforts to uh, defeat Nazi Germany. So uh, I I will give that some thought. I am planning on the real Dracula for Halloween, which should be awesome because the real Dracula, Vlad Dracul, is a fascinating historical character. And they just, uh, just completely forget to tell us about this in school. Uh, that he he wasn't just some guy that people said some stories about. He was brutal, but he was also very effective in fighting against the Ottomans. And he ties into one of my favorite uh, subjects in all history, which is the cross versus crescent struggles uh, in the Mediterranean and Eastern Europe. So we'll definitely have that on Halloween, which will be a lot of fun. Aries writes in the following... TJ from South Korea called in saying we should make a deal with China to unify the peninsula under Seoul with an agreement and for all U.S. forces to vacate. While I briefly considered this approach as well, this is a classic American mistake. If we take TJ's approach and the way it stands now, communist China loses nothing by using North Korea to stick us in the eye. What we should do is make it clear to China that they don't get their dog on if they don't get their dog on a leash, we're going to take care of business and they will have a substantial military presence on their border when we're done. This is in our interest for it to uh, happen anyway, so why would we give away the opportunity? In Vietnam, when the North went to war with the South, we should have taught the communists a lesson and invaded the North. In the Korean War, we should not only, we should not only have done the same thing, but when China got involved, we should have taken Manchuria. It's obvious that our enemies, whether communist or jihadi, don't mind sacrificing millions of their own citizens in order to make political gains. So we need to make them pay a major price, a price that they care about to truly deter their aggression. It seems the only thing they really care about is real estate. That's from Aries. And um, just let that I'll let that analysis stand on its own. Uh, you can, you know, TJ had a very interesting perspective from South Korea. It's, it's pretty awesome to be a radio host in New York City, be talking about uh, what's going on in Korea and have somebody listening live to the show call in from the Korean Peninsula. We didn't you know, we didn't uh, prepare that in advance. That wasn't set up. We just have listeners 
If you have access to the internet, you can listen to this show, which is probably a great time to tell you all that uh, if you ever aren't in uh, radio range, you can listen on the iHeart app, and the podcast is always there for you. It's free. You can download it off iTunes, so please do. Uh, Neil writes the following. Uh, Hey, Buck, love your radio program. I listen every day. I'm a veteran, live in Charleston, South Carolina, and have the answer to your dilemma. I have a barbecue sauce that is the best you will ever have. I've been trying to save the cash slowly, and eventually it will be in stores. But it is what you're. But it is what you are looking for to start experimenting with barbecue. Uh, it'll work great in your slow cooker. If you'd like, I'll send you a jug for you and Miss Molly to try. Um, that is. Uh, he's, he also writes, uh, "Long live Team Buck, Steve." And he. Uh, oh, sorry. Long live real. <laughs> long live Team Buck, Neil. And uh, Neil, thank you so much. That's very, very kind of you. I appreciate that. I'm sure your barbecue sauce is phenomenal. And if you ever do get it in stores, call in. You can, you know, you can sneak in a little, uh, hey, I'm the guy who has the new barbecue sauce on the show. Okay, well, you can sneak that in sometime, I'm sure, in the conversation. Steve uh, writes, keep up the history lessons. Steve, I appreciate that. Uh, the response to the Malta uh, history segments has been overwhelming and overwhelmingly positive. Uh, It's not normal or usual for a radio host doing a live show to go into history deep dives like that. So it's considered a little risky in the business. Uh, But the fact that there's been such a such a response to it, at least until I hear otherwise from all of you, I'm going to keep it up and I'm going to improve them and and do a whole bunch of things with them going forward. So thank you for that. Kenneth writes in just heard yesterday's podcast. I'd love to taste your scrambled eggs, but I just don't see barbecue without fire. If you find a way to do it, I'd love to hear. But friends and myself have attempted have been attempting uh, barbecue without fire for years, and it's truly a life's work to do it even moderately well and repeatable. Fans since the blaze, keep up the good work. Shields high. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Kenneth, for uh, supporting what I do, supporting the show, and for your thoughts on my scrambled eggs. As I've said before, the real secret is just to make sure that you take the uh, take the eggs in the pan off the flame and you keep doing that instead of just trying to time it out because you're gonna if you leave them on on a flame that's anything from medium low heat above it's so easy to overcook them and once the eggs are overcooked then then you're overcooked you're, you're donezo so you you want to take them off the flame mix in things put them back on the flame that's a huge tip that i find is incredibly uh, incredibly useful for making the best imaginable scrambled eggs. Molly's got me throwing hot sauce on my eggs these days often. I got to say, I kind of love that. It's really delicious. Uh, so that's, oh, and also butter. You got to use butter, everybody. People with this Pam spray stuff, it's just not, it's just not going to be as good. I mean, it's fine, but it's just not going to be as good. I've also made some converts recently to thick cut bacon. And I'm, I'm very pleased that there's been some, some willingness among friends and family to listen to me. Forget about that thin, cellophane-looking, clear, see-through bacon you get in a grocery store. If you can, find a butcher that will actually slice the bacon for you while you're sitting there and get it thick. And if you can't get that, at least find the thickest cuts of bacon you can in the store. Bacon should be very clearly pork in its flavor it should not just be a salty fatty thing i'm you know i i I keep it real when it comes to the bacon so uh like i said before if you want to send me a message uh you might get it on team buck speaks here on the show facebook.com slash buck sexton and please do follow me there i post throughout the day and it's a great way for all of us in the freedom hut to to keep in touch 
So uh, with that, I will ask you to, uh, as I always do, tell a friend or two about the show if you get the chance. That's the way that we continue to grow, and you have been doing that. Many of you have been doing it, and it's so helpful, and, and I greatly appreciate it. Uh, we've got an interesting week coming up, I'm sure, between the healthcare debacle with Republicans, the nuclear standoff on the Korean Peninsula, and much more. So excited to be joining you for all of that. Uh, until we have that chance, though, I want you to have a fantastic weekend. Watch a good movie, eat some barbecue if you can, and until then, Shields High.